0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Nehemiah 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Echihirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers, messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are rebuilding that wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking, Their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shimeah, the son of Deleah, at Mehtabal, who was confined to his home, He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elu in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehonhanan had taken the daughter of Meshullam the son of Bechariah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. All
1: right, long passage, but were there any themes or words that seemed to pop out to you as it was being read? For me, fear. Fear is a very interesting thing. Everyone experiences fear, some more than others. There are more immediate, tangible fears like fear of heights, fear of tight spaces, fear of loose, wild animals. There are more common fears like fear of failure, fear of being vulnerable, Fear of appearing weak. There are more irrational fears, like fear of gravity. That's a thing. Fear of clocks. I didn't know that was a thing. Fear of clowns. No, that's rational, isn't it? Yeah, that's more on the rational side. Or then some like, you know, like some of our leaders, I won't mention who, but like for Matt, there's the irrational fear of spiders, Now, some scientists I read up on this. Some scientists would explain that this is due to a maladapted response system. He may still have a caveman mentality, like spider will end humanity. Ah, you know that sort of thing. No offense, buddy. Um, Fear is a very powerful experience for good or for bad. It can flood your body, your body with adrenaline, so that you can fight or flight. Fear can be uh, an, an actually like a, a positive sensation in times of thrill. That's why you go on like roller coasters or people do things like jump out of airplanes and stuff like that. Fear can cause your body to jolt. Fear can cause you to cower. Fear can cause you to tremble and shake. It can make your face go pale. It can make your face blush. Or if your body gets very desperate and realizes there's no way out of it, your body can be like deuces, I'm out, and faint. I'm out. But as many of us know, it can also be debilitating. This is probably one of the most devastating experiences of fear. It leaves us weak, it leaves us disengaged, it isolates. You never quite feel like 100%, not fully present, always feeling like you're having to sort of cope with this nagging sense of dread below the surface. This is probably one of the most common experiences of fear among us as a church community. And I know I don't need to stand up here and explain any of this to you of how it negatively impacts life. If you deal with fear in any sort of sizable way in your life, you're already aware of that. And the really challenging thing is, and this is especially easy to overlook when you're in the thick of an experience of fear, The really challenging thing is the way that it impacts our community. How, when the members, the individual members of the body of Christ, are debilitated by fear, it impacts the community as a whole. The whole community is weakened and disengaged. When one suffers, we all suffer together. It's just part of the gig. And the reason is that fear pushes us into defensive postures. I'm afraid of something. My body, my mind, my heart is going to automatically sort of go into a defense, defensive posture. Maybe I'm ready to fight. I'm I'm ready to lash out. There's just conflict. Feels very there. Maybe it leads to being ready to run. Fear leads to being ready to isolate. Fear leads to being ready to numb or medicate. All to the neglect of growth. All to the neglect of progress. I find it interesting when the enemies of Jerusalem see that the good work of God is progressing and it is right there at the brink of being completed. The last ditch effort to come against the rebuilding of this wall and ultimately the rebuilding of God's people are fear tactics. Verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us. Verse 13, that I should be afraid. Verse 14, prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Verse 19, Tobias sent letters to make me afraid, 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 afraid. So each movement in this chapter is very unique and actually very creative. There are very creative tactics to come against God's people. They are very diverse but what Nehemiah identifies and what every single one of us must learn to identify is that behind all of them is fear. You reduce it down to its most basic essence and it's fear. Fear tactics that were intended to get Nehemiah to one, come down, two, run away, and three, give in. So first, Fear tactics intended to get Nehemiah to come down. Now, the Bible will often use spatial terms or other descriptions in order to alert the reader of something spiritually significant going on. So, for instance, in John's gospel, John's going to employ the use of light and dark and day and night all the time to indicate to the reader, oh, something significant is happening here. Or as you read through the book of Genesis, for instance, especially in the earlier chapters of Genesis, you'll see this mention often of moving eastward, moving eastward, so-and-so moved east, and what it's supposed to indicate is that humanity is drifting further and further away from life in the garden, the way things were supposed to be, as Milton called it, east of Eden. And so here, this phrase, come down, I believe is intended to alert us, the reader, of something significant, not just a a move geographically south of Jerusalem to to this place, but the potential for things to go south in Nehemiah's life, the potential for things to go downhill. Look at me again in verses one through two. Now, and again, I'm I'm gonna butcher these names. She set me up for failure here. (laughs) Now, when Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although... Uh, Up until that time, I had not set the doors and the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, come and let us meet together in Hacephirim in the plain of, oh no. That should have been the first sign. Things are not, oh no, oh no, oh no, no, no. But they intended to do me harm. So Nehemiah sees right through this first attempt. Here it is. Come, let's meet. Let's talk about it. Let's dialogue about this. Let's, let's have a nice, civilized conversation. Come, and, and come this way so that we can tell you all of our opinions about your work that you're doing in Jerusalem. In a famous letter from the Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote these words. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all of the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would be engaged in little else in the course of the day and I would have no time for constructive work. Now, we're not trying to place ourselves on the same level, MLK, or that we will ever face the same level of opposition, but the point is this. If we respond to every beckoning for our attention, if we were to respond to every opinionated voice, every critical comment, every distraction saying, hey, 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 come here, come here, come here, come here. We would have no time and no energy for the very things that God has called us to do. Verse three, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a what? A gr- Great work. It's freezing in here, isn't it? Let's warm our hearts, let's warm our bodies. A great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Who do you think you are to pull me away from what God has called me to? Who do you think you are? Greg McCowan in his uh, amazing book called Essentialism said this, Remember that if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. If you are unclear about your call to discipleship, if you're unclear about your vocation in this world, if you're unclear about your responsibilities to your family and to your church community and to this world, then there are gonna be plenty of voices that will seek to define that for you. Culture, Entertainment, friends, coworkers, college buddies, classmates, coworkers. There will be people lining up to define for you what you should be doing. I'll read it again. If you do not prioritize your life, someone will. If you don't have a clear sense about not just the work, but the value, the greatness of this call, then you're gonna allow yourself to be pulled in a million different directions. No wonder why every time I ask someone, how are you doing? It's almost always the same answer. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so busy. Nehemiah knew that at best, best case scenario, this is a distraction and at worst, this is an attempt to kill him. Either way, it wasn't worth stopping the work. Verse four, you guys still with me? Verse four, and they sent to me four times in this way, again and again and again, and I answered them in the same manner. I am not going to allow your clamor to change my mind. You think you're persistent? I'm stubborn. Try me. Try me. He did not let their passion to distract him determine his answer. You're gonna love this one. I know you're gonna love this one. Anne Lamott put it this way. No, period, is a complete sentence. I guess that didn't have the effect I was anticipating. (laughs) No is a complete sentence. We have a hard time with that one, don't we? We have a real hard time with that. See, Giving your yes to something, especially giving your yes to something great means that you're also going to need to give a clear no to a lot of other things, to a lot of other things. And here's the tricky thing for us. You're going to have to give your no to really good things as well. To say yes to something means I'm gonna to have to say no to a long list of things, not necessarily because they're bad or morally wrong or not important, but because I'm a human being with limited capacity and I'm giving my yes to this. But again, this is hard for us. Why? Because we're people pleasers. And we have a very hard time telling people no. Why? What are they gonna think? Are they gonna take offense to this? What if I lose this friendship? What if, what, if, what if I lose this opportunity? What if I never get the invitation again? See, the Bible instructs us, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be clear in your yes, be clear in your no. I didn't let him change my mind. Verses four through seven. In the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, quote, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it. I got a bunch of people who will confirm this. That you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear about these reports. So now come and let us take counsel. Now, if there was ever a time in Nehemiah's work to leave the work and to come down and to sort it all out, it would be right now. The stakes are very high. They have turned up the heat on this thing. They are accusing him of rebellion against the king. They are accusing him that he's on a power trip and that he's assembled yes men to boost his ego and his reputation, and now they're threatening to take all of this to the Persian king who has the capability of destroying him like that. If you don't come down and meet us, we're gonna turn the heat up on you. If you don't come down to meet us and talk about this, we are gonna make you pay. If there was ever a time to come down, sort this whole thing out, it would be right now. But I love this. He doesn't. Verse eight through nine. Then I sent to him saying, what? No, no such thing as you say have been done. No such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. You are tripping. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking, their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Amen, no means no. I don't need man's approval, let alone from you. My source of approval, my source of identity, my source of purpose, My reputation, my strength is in God. I don't need you. I don't need your approval. Whatever you're threatening to take away, I wasn't interested in the first place. I have my everything in Christ, or in his case, I have my everything in God. I am complete, amen? Now secondly, we see fear is being used to try to get Nehemiah to run away. Verse 10 through 11. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Daliah, Daliah, Dali, Dali, come Karen. Oh, <laughs> cheater. Son of um, M, he, who uh, was confined to his house, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away. So Shemaiah, good guy or bad guy? This is important. Bad guy. Now, we don't know if he's faking being bedridden, but it is suspicious, right? He's like, come, meet me with me. I can't get out of bed. And he's like, quick, let's get to the temple. But he invites Nehemiah to come to his house. Now, Nehemiah doesn't see the trap yet. But even this move right here would be perceived as Nehemiah getting desperate. The fact that he's going to visit a prophet would send some sort of message to the people around, uh-oh, Nehemiah's getting desperate. Nehemiah's leadership's starting to falter. Nehemiah's looking for answers. Nehemiah doesn't know what to do, we're winning. This is a calculated move. Shemaiah tells him, They're going to get you. In fact, they're coming for you right now, quick. Let's make our way and hide in the temple. Wait a minute, Nehemiah thinks. Like red flags are immediately appearing for Nehemiah. Because he knows that despite the fact that this is a respected prophet, his words aren't adding up with God's word. See, this right here is the key to maturity in your faith, knowing God's word and then testing everything according to it. Where does that conviction come? Where does that like the red flags come? From knowing God's word and then discerning things that come our way based on what we know to be true. So Nehemiah thinks he's not representing God. God wouldn't call me to run from my problems. God wouldn't call me to run from my struggle and to run from pain and to run from suffering or even to run from death itself. The man of God does not run from struggle. The woman of God does not run from challenge. That is not the vision that the Bible gives us. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's the main character named Christian. It's a big allegory of the Christian faith, and he represents us on the journey towards the celestial city. And as he's progressing through his journey, he catches sight of his enemy. And this is how Bunyan describes this scene. He espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet with him. His name was Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. And I love how logical he is. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn his back to him might give him greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore he resolved to venture and to stand his ground. So he went on and Apollyon met him. You don't have armor on your back, friend. You got armor for the front. Why? Because you're called to face it. Because you're called to face it. Why should someone like me run? Thirdly, we see fears used to try to get Nehemiah to give in. In other words, to compromise. Verses 11 through 13. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand, I'm sorry, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him but that he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So this wasn't just about trying to make Nehemiah look like a coward. At the end of the day, this was a conspiracy to try to get him to compromise, to sin. Now, you may be looking at this passage and you're like, what do you mean, sin? Where's the temptation to sin? Well, again, here's maturity. Nehemiah knows his Bible, Nehemiah knows the word of God. And not only does he know that he shouldn't run, but he knows that according to Numbers 18, verse 7, that no one but the priest is allowed to enter into the temple beyond the veil. I can't go in there. That's off limits. But wait, desperate times call for desperate measures, right? Surely God wouldn't mind this one time. My situation's extraordinary. My pain is unique. This loneliness that I'm experiencing, no one understands. I've been hurt. I've been betrayed. I've been disappointed. I have needs. I have wants. I have dreams. No one understands. It's really really easy to go down that road of compromise. And once you take that first step, desperate times call for desperate measures. It becomes all the more easy to justify the next step, and the next step, and the next step, and the next step, until finally your conscience is so seared. Your, Your conscience is so impaired that all of your conviction over sin is gone your desire to obey, the joy of obedience is completely drained, your energy to withstand temptation is completely depleted and you just give in every time, every time, every time. And so Nehemiah makes a determination that I wanna urge you to make in your life as well and it's this, I'd rather die in obedience than live in compromise, I would rather die in joyful obedience to God than to live in the ease of compromise. I'd rather suffer while honoring God than experience the dishonor of giving in. Verse 14, remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid and afraid and afraid and afraid and fear and fear and fear and fear. So, why do we say yes when we know that the answer ought to be no? Why do we give in to pressure? Why do we conform? Why do we overcommit? Fear of disappointing people, fear of missing out, fear of being unimportant. Fear of being irrelevant. Why do we run from difficult challenges? Fear of loss, fear of scrutiny, fear of rejection, fear of being unimportant. I'm sorry, fear of death, fear of pain. But here's the question, why do we compromise in sin? Where is fear in the equation of compromise and sin? And this is a trickier one. Why do we give in? And I believe the answer is because we are afraid that God is less than He says He is, that God can't be trusted. The fear that God is holding out, the fear that God isn't real, the fear that God isn't good, the fear that God isn't sufficient. The theologian Martin Luther once said that the sin underneath all of our sins is this, not trusting the love and grace of Christ and thinking that we have to take matters into our own hands. God won't come through. Now watch this, verse 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were what? Afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So, this great reversal is occurring right in front of us here. The enemies who were arrogant and tried to make God's people afraid are now being humiliated and find themselves afraid. It's like that scene that I've seen it in a a billion movies where there's like an underdog alone by themselves and the, the cards are stacked against them and all their enemies are facing them and they're closing in and then all of a sudden all of them begin to run and they're like, yeah, they're afraid of me. And then they turn around and realize that something or someone much bigger is behind them. There's nothing frightening about the Jewish people. Nothing. And it's weird that I have to say this, but I think it's important. There should be nothing frightening or intimidating about us, the church. Nothing. We don't succeed through being the biggest. We don't succeed through being the best or through being the strongest or like bulldogging our way through life. What causes the surrounding nations to tremble is when they realize that such a great God is committed to such a powerless people like this. That's what causes the people to tremble. They realize, wait a minute, we've been messing with God. And how does God flex his muscles? How does God get his message across? It's through the renewing work that he's doing among his people. In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter three, we read this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What Paul is saying is that it's through the grace and the unity and the growth of God's people that he puts his cosmic enemies on blast. When we stand unified in the gospel, he's sending notice to hell. When we display the grace of Jesus Christ, it makes demons shake. When we love and we repent and we forgive, it reminds Satan that his fate is sealed. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Philippians 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When we stand side by side in unity, it is an ongoing message to the enemy. You are done for. I gotta conclude. Verses one through two. Now when the wall had been built... And I'd set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem for he was more faithful and what? God-fearing man than many. So this is interesting because Nehemiah sets up the worship leaders and the singers. The first thing he does once the project is complete is that he commissions... The the leader, the song leaders, the worship leaders, the musicians of Israel. And so to me, I'm thinking that's weird because that doesn't seem very triumphant, it doesn't seem very strong, that doesn't necessarily seem like a good long-term solution for securing the city. So, what does worship have to do with facing the fear tactics of the enemy? Everything. Everything. And here's why. The only way to fight fear is with fear. Let me say it this way. The only way to overcome fear of man is to replace it with the fear of the Lord. And how do we cultivate the fear of the Lord? It's through praise. It's by being formed in worship. And Nehemiah goes on to appoint a leader who he calls a God-fearing man. Why? Why is this important? Why is this an important qualification? Because he trusts him, knowing that he will not be motivated by the fear of man. A greater fear has gripped his heart. And he knows that a person who now lives for the glory of God is no longer interested in living for the approval of man. He's not going to be swayed. Why? Because he's gripped out of fear of the Lord. Michael Reeves once said, The fear of God is a happy and healthy fear that shapes and controls our other fears, reigning in anxiety. Again, I've got questions. How is fear healthy? And how is fear happy? This is where the gospel comes in. On the cross, the gospel tells us that Jesus took on what the, the Bible describes as the wrath of God. The full punishment, the just anger, the condemnation that you and I deserve because of our sin, our rebellion, our compromise, all of it fell on Christ. He absorbed it all so that the one who tr- trusts in Jesus could be forgiven, so that we would be accepted, so that we would be restored. Now, for the one that is at odds with God, The one who is in rebellion against God, the one who is indifferent towards God, the one who is continuing in unbelief towards God, there is a reason to be afraid of God. To be frightened. But for the Christian, fear of the Lord takes on a very different form. In 1 John, we're told that the perfect love of God casts out all fear. What kind of fear is he talking about? The fear of punishment. The fear of abandonment the fear of rejection, it's all gone. And it now, through trusting in Jesus Christ, it now becomes overwhelmed and being awestruck by the infinite worth of God. Let me say it this way. Faith takes us from seeing God as awful, which I have to imagine in a room like this, there are some of us that are like, just God is awful. Faith takes viewing God as awful and begins to see him as awesome. Faith transforms our heart from worry to wonder. And yes, we will still tremble. That is a biblical response to the infinite worth of God. But we don't tremble in fright, we tremble in adoration. And I'll close with this quote by Michael Reeves He said, The dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. This is my prayer for us today, that the dazzling beauty of Jesus Christ would cause our hearts to quake in a way that releases us from all forms of fear of man. God, thank you.